you guys make your way back to your seats, we're going to continue on in our worship. You guys know that scene in Naked Gun when he goes in the bathroom and he leaves his mic on? It's been my greatest fear ever since I became a pastor. And I totally did that today. And by God's grace, I just went in there to wash my hands and that was it. I mean, God's grace. Oh my gosh. I would have left. I would have walked back in here and realized and just driven home. And you guys would all be sitting in here by yourselves. The Lord, the Lord is real. So, <laughs> wow. Good morning, Red Tree. <laughs> Man, it is good to be together. Um, <laughs> seriously, that was, you were that close to just losing your pastor this morning and you didn't even know. You guys are all just shaking hands, having fun. Um, <laughs> so we're continuing on in our study of Colossians today. Uh, if you want to grab your Bibles and turn there, we're going to be in Colossians chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, uh, we have house Bibles on the end of each row. I'm going to be thinking about that the rest of the day. I don't know if there's a way for me to even recover and deliver this sermon, but we're going to try it. Uh, <laughs> um, so we're, we're, we're jumping back into this text in Colossians 3 today. Um, I, I, I don't know if you guys got to be here last week or not, but it was such a joy for me to sit under Pastor Craig's teaching, the way he parsed the word for us and led us through that. I, I mean, guys, I don't, I don't say this to be whatever, but I mean, Craig McAlevey is my pastor, and it was just such a joy to sit under his teaching and to be challenged in a hard word last week. And before we pray and jump into this text, I want to note something. So this section here in chapter 3, starting at verse 1, heading down to verse 17, is essentially one section. It's one flow of thought, but there's so much there that we broke this up uh, over the course of uh, three weekends to, to kind of retreat it. And so what's going to happen is we're going to, there's going to be crossover. We're going to recover a little bit of ground each week as we kind of rebuild uh, this, this thought process that's going on in chapter three of Colossians. So I'm going to pray for us. And I'm going to read the text and our text today actually starts in verse 12 but we're going to start at verse 1 and read uh, the whole progression here that's going on. So join with me in prayer, and we'll jump into the Word. Jesus, thank you so much for your goodness and your faithfulness. God, this morning, as we um, take a few minutes uh, to be in your Word, as we take a few minutes to uh, just reflect on your goodness and your faithfulness, God, um, and, and honestly hear some hard words, we ask that you would just be really present. Holy Spirit, be our interpreter today. Be our discipler today. Cut us where we need to be cut. Convict us of our sin. Remind us of things we have forgotten and cast aside. And God, teach us new things about your goodness today. We trust you for this, Jesus, so we pray it boldly in your name. Amen. So we read... In the first verse, the third chapter of the letter to the Colossians, this. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two, you once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. 
Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. In verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy, beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. And this is the word of the Lord. So, what are we going to do with this beautiful text today? Before we dive into the specifics of what we have today, let's remember to put ourselves back into the overarching flow of this letter. Colossians 3, uh, and through the end of the letter, is a really interesting chunk of the letter because we're essentially past a lot of the main purpose or points uh, for which Paul wrote the letter. And now we're getting into the meat of the instruction he wants to give to this church. So remember, Paul has already given his thesis for the letter, right? As you have received Christ, so walk in him. He's already combated and spoken against the false teachers in Colossae. Do not be taken captive by empty deceit and philosophies. And he's already given the main theological thrust of the letter. Christ is sufficient, right? All of these things have already come out. And what you see after he moves into chapter 3 for the rest of the letter is that Paul is simply defending this thesis. As you have received Christ, so walk in him. Walk in him, which is a brilliant thesis until you sit back and go, what the heck does that mean? What the, that's, that's obviously like symbolic language, right? We don't literally physically walk inside a person's body. What does it mean to walk in Christ? And Paul takes the rest of the letter and fleshes that out in his instruction to the church. And so the beginning of chapter three, he starts with the most vague articulation of this truth. He starts with the broadest brush possible. Do not set your mind on things of earth, but set your mind on things above. He hearkens back to Christ's own teaching at the Sermon on the Mount. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, but store up treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy. You are not a citizen of this world. You have been bought with a price. Your sin and its penalty have been nailed to the cross. You are in the family of God, a citizen of heaven. And when Christ, who is your life, returns, you will appear with him and you will experience eternal perfection in union with him. That is where your heart and your soul and your mind ought to hang out and linger. It's an eternity because that's your destination. So he, he gives us that. And so, okay, I get that. That is definitely moving right from walk in Christ as you received him to set your mind on the things of heaven instead of the things of earth. You're like, I, I get that. That's more specific. But come on, Paul, like I got to go to work tomorrow and I have to shop at the grocery store and I have bills to pay and I have this neighbor who's kind of annoying and I've got to deal with this issue with my family and we've got vacation this summer and I got to decide how much stuff I'm going to give the churches in the streets and if it should be nice stuff or the old stuff I don't want anymore and how we're going to do all that. So what does that mean? And so Paul, as he moves through chapter three, gets more specific. And as we're going to see as he moves from chapter three into chapter four, he's going to get more specific. But, but right now, he's, he's taking it to the next level of specificity. I practiced that word in the back because I did not want to say it wrong, and that is honestly true. <laughs> so... <laughs> That's probably, I should probably practice that and then not tell you, because that kind of ruins 
the effect. <laughs> so Paul launches off by giving us this analogy of putting off and putting on. And this is a, a biblical image that is used, for the, New used uh, for, for the early church, used in the New Testament several times. Paul uses it here in Colossians. He uses it also in Ephesians chapter 4. I would strongly suggest in your personal scripture reading this week, go back and read Ephesians 4 beginning to end because that's, he, he articulates this same analogy with uh, just a lot more detail th th than we get in Colossians. But he, he gives us this analogy of the, the put off and the put on, old garments and new garments. And he gives us, in our text from last week, these two lists of sins that, that he wants to see put off and cast away. So the first one, right, this is uh, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness. Now, What's interesting, if you look at this list, and if you want to get really nerdy and you, you, you go online and find an interlinear Bible with some, like, some Greek concordances in it, and you click on these words, this first list that he gives us is, is all sexual in nature, which is that's a weird place to lead out, Paul, but that's where he's at. And it makes a ton of sense in the culture he's speaking into. So you've got this word sexual immorality is how we translate it in English. Uh, it, it literally means in the Greek, uh, seeing a prostitute, going and engaging a prostitute. Um, this word impurity is actually, I think, really important for us. This word impurity means to adopt the ethics of the age which was just as important for the people of Colossae as it is for us. You know, Colossae was this pretty predominant Roman city. And if you go back and read about first century Roman culture, uh, you'll find that that word very specifically has some sexual ethics uh, connotations. And it does for us as well. To adopt the ethics of the age is to make some very distinct decisions about how, how you understand sexuality. This word passion has to do with a continued state of lust. This, 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 this phrase, evil desires, has to do um, with, with, with this passionate desire, like something you desire, but in your heart you know it goes against what is right and wrong, it goes against your ethics. And this phrase uh, that, that we translate as covetousness has to do with disregarding the rights of other humans in the face of your desire. That your desire is so important to you that you're willing to set aside the basic human rights of the people who are in the way of your desire. Now, really quick, I know I'm like still in Craig's text last week, like I'm not even to our text yet, but I think it's important to start here. Paul leads out in his description of what it means to attack our flesh and take off our old self and cast away our sinfulness by doing a deep dive on sexual sin and godly sexual ethics. And I think that's worth us considering. It's worth us considering because God cares about your sexual ethics. And I know that one of, the, one of the messages of our world and our culture today is, well, if God is so real and he's so big and he's so grand, why would he care about what I do with my body? That seems pretty insignificant for the God of the universe to care about that. But beloved, you are disregarding the preciousness of your creation. If you're a human being, then the image of God is stamped in you. And every time you breathe, Every time air enters your lungs and leaves again, you are declaring the majesty of your creator who designed you and stamped his image in you and sustains you. And so he cares deeply about the details of your person, your body, your mind, your soul. Our sexual ethics speak to our understanding of our creator and our sustainer. So we must start there. You know, Millie's doing Awana right now, which I don't know if any of you guys have ever been involved in Awana, but it's like, it's like Christian scouts, and like, if we're being honest, it's like a couple levers lower than like scouts in terms of like the camping stuff, but they do uh, lots of scripture memory, and it's, it's awesome. It's, it's, it's a wonderful program, and, and Millie's going through that right now, and she had this thing about uh, defining sin, what is sin? And, and, and the definition they gave her comes back to whatever you say, whatever you think, whatever you do that dishonors God. 
You see, beloved, you are a whole person. A whole person. You're a complex creature. And that creature is precious to your creator. Important and sacred. So he cares. He cares about the tiniest details of your life. Not because he's like ready to stomp on you. Not because he's looking for you to mess up so he can be the, the angry big brother, right? Not, not because he wants to squash your pleasure or your joy or he's this legalistic like narc. No, 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 no. Because God actually cares about you and actually desires what's best for you in every detail of your life. There is no piece of you so minuscule that God says, well, that part doesn't matter to me. No, he made you and he stamped his image in you and he sustains you and he cares about you. So beloved, put off your sexual immorality. Put it off. No longer. We used to walk in that way. We used to live in that. That used to be flowing through our identity and our person. No more. Put it off. And I'm just going to tell you guys straight up, if that's something that trips you up, if God's standards of sexual ethics for you, if you have habituated, stuck, secret, shameful behavior, and it's crushing your soul, please, please, please invite one of your pastors into that. We would love to be in that with you. Help you find God's best for you. You know, Craig actually leads um, a, a sexual integrity recovery group out of our church, and they actually have four slots opening up for, for guys to step in and be a part of that. So if that's something where you're at, please come talk to Craig or me. Please don't be alone in that. Please don't buy Satan's lie that keeps you isolated or keeps you downplaying. He moves on to a second list. He names anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk. And same thing, right? If you look at the actual, the actual kind of, the, 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 I don't usually do these kind of deep dives on word studies, but this, whenever there's a list and Paul chooses this many specific words, I feel like it's good to take some time and, and figure out why he chose the words he chose, right? So this word anger has to do with a settled state of the soul, where anger is your defining default position. This word wrath has to do with these sinful outbursts of passion. So you have the settled state of anger, you have the outburst of wrath. This word malice we should think about. This word malice has to do with a vicious disposition. Think about that. A vicious disposition. A way of carrying yourself that is vicious toward others and people in the world around you. This word slander has to do with abusive language. And the, word, the phrase obscene talk, it, it literally translates to you, you have a poop mouth, which I think is amazing. <laughs> I think that's... Thank you, Paul, for that one. <laughs> I love the fact that there was some PhD in like the ESV translation committee who was like, now it says poop mouth. I say we put obscene talk. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> Paul is naming these specific attributes of our hearts, our minds, our actions that, let's be blunt, they're simply unbecoming of our new identity in Christ. Now, don't miss this. Satan loves to downplay the importance of sin, right? We read lists like this, and something in your Protestant brain kind of clicks up and goes, hey, bro, don't worry. Remember, we're all sinners. Like, like, I know he just gave that list of really specific things, but like, just remember, everybody's a sinner, and it's about, it's about salvation by faith. It's not about your works. Like, like you, you, let's breeze past this and get, get maybe to the next part where he talks about all the good stuff. Do not buy into that lie. The Bible is very clear that God cares about your holiness. Cares about your holiness. And look, I'll, I'll, I'll stand on this rock to the end, right? Salvation is by faith. It is by grace. Come on. 
Thank you, like thank you to the fathers and mothers of the church who came before us and fought for the prominence of that doctrine. Paul's not talking about salvation here. He has been very, very clear up to this point that he regards the people he's speaking to as brothers and sisters. He's talking about those who have received salvation through the sufficient and finished work of Christ on their behalf. And to them, he says, beloved, such things are unbecoming of you. Take off those filthy garments and cast them away. They're unbecoming. It's important for us to remember this. Here's the thing. He he moves on, and he has this phrase right in the middle there where he says, don't lie to each other. I love that. Don't don't lie to each other. This is right in the middle. It's right after, it's between the two lists. Don't lie to each other. This is you. This is your heart. Don't posture and act as though you are somehow on like a higher level of holiness and righteousness, that there isn't a several things on that list that you've ticked off in the last 48 hours. Don't, don't show up amongst yourselves. And this is him hearkening back to these heretics who've put themselves on a spiritual pedestal and said, look at my asceticism. Look at the visions I've had. Look how holy I am. He's going, look, stop posturing. You know your hearts. You know this represents your desires. You long for these things. But it's unbecoming. It's inappropriate of your identity, of your standing in Christ. So cast them off. Take them off. And he goes, look, we are all equal at this table. Jewish, Gentile, rich, poor, good family, bad family. It doesn't matter. All of us come to this table pretty wretched. So don't lie about it. Don't posture Don't flex and try and show yourself as more righteous than you are. Be real about the nastiness of your heart before Christ and the sufficiency of his work to destroy your sin and take off that nasty old garment. And then he gets to our text. So put on. Put on. And he gives us this list. Compassionate hearts kindness, humility, meekness, patience. And this, again, like I'm, gonna, I'm just going to do the same thing. I love the phrase compassionate hearts because we use the word heart to talk about like the seat of our emotions. But in Jesus' day, they talked about your intestines, which I just think is amazing. So the actual literal Greek word there is merciful guts, which... <laughs> Again, just imagine these guys spent their whole life PhDs in linguistics, and they're like, now it says bowels, but we should put heart. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> kindness has to do with this, this, this heart that is comforting of others, that doesn't press. There's this image there of it that doesn't press, but allows space. Humility, liter- I mean, the direct translation is lowliness. Meekness has to do with a heart that's not easily provoked. And, and the phrase that we translate as patient is suffers long, long suffering. Do you see how this list is given by Paul to directly coincide with the previous list he gave? Do you see this? Rather than a settled sinful anger, have a settled state of mercy. Rather than outbursts of wrathful passion, have an outpouring of comfort and care. Rather than malicious, vicious disposition, have a lowly and humble disposition. Rather than spewing out abusive language, be gentle, be slow to provocation. Rather than a quick and foul mouth, have long-suffering patience. See, Paul makes very specific connections here. 
And by the way, if you go back this week and you read Ephesians 4, he does the same thing. He lists very specific sin patterns and then lists out very specific godly righteous acts. Man, if this is you, put that off. It is unbecoming. But here's the thing. If you've spent any time in church, you've heard that message before, right? Hey, stop that sinning. Christ bought salvation for you. So stop doing that stuff. Put that stuff off. And maybe you're the sort of person who you've actually given yourself to that labor. And you've said, man, I hate this expression of sin in me. I want to see this dead in me. And you've poured yourself into that work only to come up stuck to feel like your wheels are spinning in mud, like you hate this practice, but you keep coming back to it. And, and the words of Paul and Romans resonate with you, where you're the things I hate are the very things I do. What wretched man am I? Because here's the thing. You can willpower yourself out of a behavior for a season, but willpower is an expendable resource. And eventually your well will run dry. And when your well well of willpower runs dry, you will run back to the same behavior because you've replaced it with nothing. You've put effort into ceasing. That's not what Paul's talking about here. He says, no, 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 no. Put it off so that you can put on what God has for you. Put it off so that you can live the way God designed you to live. Put it off so that you can, you can actually like, live and experience the life that God has for you. Put off so that you can put on. It's why he gives such specific examples here. Colossian church, are you struggling with anger? Oh my goodness. You're, you're struggling with this settled state where it just anger is your disposition? Fight for mercy. Fight for a posture of mercy. Put on what God has for you. Now, I'm not, by the way, telling you to copy and paste what Paul's saying to this church to your heart. But it is important that you hear this principle. The things that beset you, the sins that your heart runs to, the sins that, let's be honest for a minute, you love, and they are places of comfort and safety for you, and you run back to them because you honestly believe those cisterns will satisfy your thirst, even though the last 9,842 times they haven't. Those things, you need to pray, and you need to talk with brothers and sisters, and you need to explore the word so that you can find what Christ is telling you to put on in the stead of that wretched garment. And maybe it copies and pastes from Colossians or Ephesians, but maybe it doesn't. Which is why Paul makes the transition he makes here in the text. And he, begin, he moves from talking about this individual posture of the heart to talking about this communal experience of the heart. Do you see that? He gives the list, and then after the list, he begins and, talks and starts talking about the communal experience of the church. And the reason is this. This is not labor to be done alone. This is not a, like a, a single calling of a lonely heart that you need. That Listen, Christ, he made a way for you, so you better think and flex and take off your old sinful self and put on your new righteous self. Come on, it's on you. Like That's not what Paul's talking about here. This is a labor that happens in the context of the safety and the beauty of Jesus' family. You know why? Because if you're honest, your heart is too tainted and too twisted for you to engage most of the sins that beset you. It just is. Craig said this last week. They're called blind spots because you're blind to them. Right? They're habitual sins because you're habituated to them. That's probably not something you're going to beat on your own. But praise be to God. You've been adopted into a family. And in that family, you get to experience safety and confession. And you get to be called out and called up from a place of love and a place of endurance with people who say, look, 
Look, I'm not going to lie. My heart is just as jacked up, if not more. But praise be to God that he made a way and we're in this together and we're in it for the long haul. I don't know if you guys ever had this experience. Uh, maybe, maybe one day you had, maybe, you know, I, I know you've had this experience. At some point you had an outfit that you loved and some, there was like a point when you realized uh, this has gone out of fashion. I love this shirt. I love this outfit. I love everything about it. It's comfortable. I cannot purchase this again. It's gone. It's out. Have you, have you guys, have you had this before? Maybe you go back and you look at yourself from like high school. Eh? And you're like, ooh, I have a couple of pictures of our elders and staff from high school and college. If you guys want to experience this with us. I'm going to let you guess who's who. Most of it's pretty obvious. <laughs> Where is Kreutzer right now? Is he hiding? <laughs> oh, man. You have those moments, yep, that's me. Uh, you have those moments where you look back and you go, oh, I, th- I, I legitimately thought that was cool. <laughs> and really, really quick, by the way, the, the problem with this, the reason we fall victim to this, is that when you're in middle school and high school and college, you're an idiot, <laughs> right? We can all affirm that. That when you're that young, you're just, you're, it's just not, the capacity is not in you to determine how, how much a fool you are making yourself in public. And it just takes a while. High school, college kids, I love you. But I'm just telling you, about 12 years from now, you're going to go, dang, he's 100% right. I can't believe I wore that in public. I can't believe this exists for eternity on Instagram servers. What was I thinking? I just thank the Lord that Instagram did not exist when I was in middle school because this little slideshow would be a billion times worse. But uh, he, here's, here's the thing. Here's the thing. We all have that kind of experience and you can look back on it and you can laugh at it. But, but right now, where you're at in life, you're not going to bust that outfit out and wear it somewhere, right? And if you did, someone who loves you would probably talk to you about it. In fact, like if, if, if we're here, like if you guys were to find out that I was going to go, I don't know, say I'm going to go give the opening prayer at the National Prayer Breakfast, like, like you know, we need a small, a small pastor from no one's heard of, and so they Google me, they Google churches, and they find me, and they invite me to come, and you come see me that morning, and I'm all nervous, and I'm stoked, and you walk in, and maybe, maybe I'm planning on wearing, maybe I'm already wearing this to, uh, to the National Prayer Breakfast. And you come to pray over me, to calm me down. Look at that. Look at that. Middle school me would be so into this shirt right now. If you loved me, if you loved me, you would come up to me and say, Sam, only, the only person who should ever wear that shirt in public is Guy Fieri and you're not him. That's what you would say. And if you wouldn't, we're not friends. (laughs) If you don't love me enough to call me out on a flame shirt when I'm about to go be on TV, look at that. That's the thing though, right? It's hideous. You need need friends to call out your blind spots. We just do. We do. And I know really quick, I know it's funny to like to use the example of fashion when we talk about this, but, but this analogy actually goes a layer deeper with this level of the church. I've got a picture of another uh, cool fashionable person, if we can put him up really quick. Uh, this is a first century Jewish man, uh, and this is kind of the outfit of the day, right? You can see uh, the prayer shawl with the tassels. You can see the big old beard, uh, the outer cloak, and the inner tunic. This is the standard gear of the day. Now, what we miss here, when, when, when Paul uses this language of put off and put on, he's talking about the tunic, the, the inner part that they would wear. And the vast majority of people, unless they were wealthy, the tunic is like your go-to like work shirt, sleep shirt, slash underwear. Like that's, that's what you got. Unless you're really rich, 
that's your underwear. Is that kind of like, and it's kind of like, imagine like Ebenezer Scrooge, just this like sleep shirt that's really long, right? But you wear it all day, every day. And for us, when our clothes go out of fashion, we buy new clothes. That's kind of the normative flow of our culture. That's not how the world worked in this day. Uh, if once you reach adulthood, you would almost certainly only own a handful of changes of clothes for the rest of your life. Um, the the, the, the uh, frequency with which you replaced your tunic had to do with one thing. Did you tear it badly enough that it cannot be fixed anymore? That's when you determine that you're going to replace your tunic. And so uh, most adults would own maybe two of these bad boys. And you wear one until it is so dirty, so gross, so torn, so whatever, that you need to swap it out. And so you swap it out and you wash and fix that one and wear your other one for two days, two weeks, two months, more, right? And that's how it works out. The, the majority of people would buy new tunics or make new tunics with the kind of frequency that we buy a new car, right? It'll happen a few times during your life, but it doesn't happen often. So when you see people's tunics, they, by the way, they would, they would wash their cloaks way more often because they were more public, but their tunics, for the most part, most of the time, were pretty gross, right? So this is the image Paul is talking about. When he says, put off and put on, he's talking about changing your tunic, taking off your nasty, gross, dirty, torn clothes, and putting on your clean clothes. But I love this because it actually goes a layer deeper. You see, most people didn't get new tunics super often, and the ones they had were incredibly dirty basically all the time, except for the Christians. I love this. The early church grabbed a hold of this imagery of putting off and putting on and putting on Christ, who is your righteousness. And they began this tradition that literally dates back to the first century, where when someone accepted Christ and they received salvation and the time for their baptism came, they would be led into the water in their dirty, nasty, everyday tunic, and they would be dipped, and they would be laid down with Christ in his death and raised up to walk in newness of life. And as they came out, the church would present them with a brand new white tunic clean and pure and unworn. And they would change and put on their new, fresh, white clothes. This is the language that Jesus himself uses in Revelation. He points back to the baptism when he talks about uh, the, the throng entering into heaven, entering into the wedding feast, clothed in white tunics that they are wearing their baptism clothes, their new, clean, fresh clothes into eternity. What an image. What an image. Because here's the thing. Anybody can change from their dirty shirt to their clean shirt. But in Christ, you get a new one. A new one. It's never been worn. That's perfectly clean. That's bright white. What and image. This is what Paul is referring to when he says put off and put on, it's unbecoming. He's saying, listen, listen, you have something new. Christ is in you. You are in him. Take off your old coat. You've been baptized. You've been laid down with him in his death. You've been raised up to walk in newness of life. This is the gospel you've already received. Why are you putting on your old, dirty, nasty cloak? Why would you do that? Put on your new tunic. You have it. It's been given to you. Put it on. This is the analogy Paul connects to what it means for us to combat our sin and strive and fight for holiness. You have been given holiness. You've been given it as a gift. So take off your old tunic and put it on. Cast that stuff aside and strive for what you've been given. Beloved, I need you to hear this. I need you to hear this. 
The, the message of this text is unavoidable. You are called by God to grow in holiness. Period. When Jesus gave the Great Commission, he said, go therefore and baptize all people, make disciples of all nations, baptize them in my name, and teach them to obey everything I have commanded of you. See, in evangelicism, we, we, can, we can fall into this kind of conversionism where what matters is checking boxes to get more souls into heaven. But beloved, if you go and you read about Jesus' ministry, you will find that he was very concerned with the holiness of his followers. That our, as, as those who've received the gift of salvation, who've been bought with a price and had our sin nailed to the cross and defeated, that have received the sufficient and excellent and completed work of Christ, that your growth in holiness is a part of the mission of the church. It's a part of what God has called his people to. It's to grow in holiness. Because he made a way for you to grow in holiness because he's given you holiness as a garment to put on. And you've been given the church where you can come and be honest and you can confess and you can invite the church to walk through compulsive and addictive and habituated behavior so that you can kill your flesh and put on the holiness of Christ. This is available to us. And it's part of our labor as the church. It's part of our call as the church. I want you to think about it this way. I'm going to give us an analogy and then we'll end with two texts. Imagine when you get to heaven, if you're a believer, you'll be perfect, right? Everything sinful in you will disappear. It will be removed. Everything in you, all the conflicts and mixed emotions and motives that exist in your heart now will not exist in eternity. You will be perfected in Christ. So think of yourself right now in this moment, in this chair. What would have to be ripped out of the spaghetti of your heart for you to be in the presence of Jesus in heaven right now? What percentage of you would disappear instantly in the presence of Christ? 20%? 50%? Eighty. How much of you would be left in eternity? Would you sitting in this chair recognize you in the presence of Jesus? Or would you be so different as to seem like a fundamentally different person? It's an interesting mental exercise. I don't give that to you to make you feel like garbage. Because when I do that exercise, I'm just going to tell you guys, the results don't come out pretty great. <laughs> but it's good to think about, and it's good to think about for this reason. Jesus left you here for a reason. You received salvation, and you didn't get vacuumed up into heaven. You got left here. Why did you get left here? Well, to participate in the mission of God, to join with him in his mission to seek and save the lost. Yes and amen. You are to go and proclaim the excellency and sufficiency of Jesus to a lost and dying world in desperate need of resurrection. You are also here to continue your growth in holiness, to become more like him, to give every ounce of energy and strength and life you have to put off and put on and become more like your Savior. So that when you stand in his presence, you stand in his presence, you'll have a good sense of what it'll actually be like. <laughs> We're called to that. I'm going to read you this text. It's from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Writing to this church that struggles with a lot, a lot of habituated, destructive sins. He says this, Therefore, Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearances and not what's in the heart. For if we're beside ourselves, it's for God. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. And hear this, this is starting in verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us 
Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised again. Verse 16, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God, making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Beloved, your participation in the mission of God, your role as an ambassador of Christ, your role as a minister of reconciliation is not even, like you can't separate that from your call to grow in holiness and become more like Jesus. It is one and the same thing. Your ministry of reconciliation, your proclamation of the goodness of Christ is interconnected with your growth and holiness and becoming more like him. Beloved, it's why we're here to participate with Jesus in his mission, to become more like him, to invite more from death into life. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give a couple minutes for us to sit and pray. And we're going to have prayer counselors like we normally do, Nikki and Matt. They're going to be available around the room. But I want you guys to do this. I want you to think about this. Christ has given you the church, given you the gift of family, in part for your obedience of growing in holiness. Let's not lie, let's not flex. We are all a mixture of convoluted, righteous, and sinful motivations. And there are sins, and there are behaviors, and there are thoughts, and there are beliefs that beset us, and chase us, and hound us, and nip at our heels, and it feels like we can't get away from them. Beloved, you are invited to bring that to your church in safety, to bring that to your God in safety, that you might grow in holiness that you might more fully be like your Savior, that you might more fully engage in his mission. So I'd ask you to do this. Take a few minutes to be with Jesus in whatever way you need to do that. If you can sit by yourself and do that, that's fine. If you need to get up and move around the room, if you need to find some space to literally physically be on your knees, And if you need a human being to pray with you, I don't know about you guys, but there is something about the beauty and safety of a brother or sister in Christ who hears your confession, who hears your shame, who hears the the thing that scares you. If this this were known, they respond with love and safety because they too are as wretched as you but Jesus is sufficient. Church calls us out and calls us up in safety. I'm going to read this text from James, and then I'm going to pray and give just some space for us to pray, for you to do the work and you to do with Jesus today. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is someone cheerful? Let him sing songs of praise. Someone's sick? Well, let him call on the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith can save the one who's sick. And the Lord will raise him up. 
And if he has committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working. Jesus, we need you this morning. We are a mess, Jesus. A mess of mixed motivations. There are parts of us that love you so dearly and want so deeply to be fully given over to your kingdom and the work of your kingdom who are longing for your return. And God, if we are honest, there are parts of us that are very, very dark that long for our own pleasure and our own comfort over and above your glory and the safety and protection and loving of others. God, we are. We are wretched. We are this just spaghetti, this mishmash of good and evil. And sometimes it's so hard to separate it out. God, thank you, thank you that your work on our behalf is sufficient. God, where there are hearts in this room who are beat down and burdened and discouraged by sin, I pray that you would give them your hope. And God, for those of us who are callous, who are downplaying, who are avoiding, pierce us today. Beloved, take a few minutes to be with Jesus and pray your confessions. And if you need to bring those to a person and let a person pray with you or over you, we have two prayer counselors around the room or you can grab any one of your pastors. Let's take a few minutes and be with Jesus. And then I'll pray for us to transition this time.